God's word. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah the prophet concerning Elam in the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will break the bow of Elam, the mainstay of their might, and I will bring upon Elam the four winds from the four quarters of heaven, and I will scatter them to all those winds, and there shall be no nation to which those driven out of Elam shall not come. I will terrify Elam before their enemies and before those who seek their life. I will bring disaster upon them, my fierce anger declares the Lord. I will send the sword after them until I have consumed them, and I will set my throne in Elam and destroy their king and officials, declares the Lord. But in the latter days, I will restore the fortunes of Elam, declares the Lord. Thus far, we read from God's word. Have you heard the phrase, the fertile crescent? Uh, The fertile part means, of course, a well-watered area, like a garden that's uh, growing quite well. The crescent part means it's shaped like a boomerang upside down. Um, The fertile crescent is that area of the world in what we call the modern Middle East, that when you start in Jerusalem and then uh, travel east, rather than going straight through that uh, famous and deathly dangerous Arabian desert, which is not recommended, travelers would veer north and stay close to moist green areas rather than being in the desert, making an arc shape as they travel east. So that's why it's called the Fertile Crescent. And today, the trip, you would start in Egypt, go through Israel, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Kuwait, and then finally Iran. And your non-desert path would start at the Nile River and go north along the Mediterranean Sea, then go east along the Tigris-Euphrates rivers, following them south until you reach the Persian Gulf. I say all that to tell you that Elam appearing here at the end of our chapter 49 in the list of nations receiving judgment is a little surprising because they're not involved with the people of Israel during the lifetime of our prophet Jeremiah, and that's for a geographic reason. Elam was very, very far away. And the point is, the main point of the sermon you'll read on your bulletin outline, Christ the King's dominion overcomes the strongest thrones in the farthest locations with his judgment and his salvation. So first we'll see from verses 34 to 37, hearing God say what he'll do to my strong throne. It applies to each of us. Secondly, in verse 38, envisioning the victorious throne of Christ, described in verse 38. And then the last verse, enjoying our restoration by our Savior and King. So what's being emphasized here at the end of chapter 49 is that God is over all nations, not just the neighbors of Israel and Judah, not just those related to Israel and Judah, but all nations everywhere, even the farthest ones away. And this emphasis is supported in this last passage of chapter 49 by the frequent use of the word I in this passage. The fact that God is the one who's doing the avenging is more prominent in this passage than it has been in all the previous passages of chapter 49. Listen to the quotes as I pick them out and just emphasize this for you now from our passage to show you my point. I will break the bow. I will scatter them. I will terrify them. I will bring disaster upon them. And so on. You get the idea. I, God is making an announcement saying what he will do. That's the emphasis that underlines the idea that God is God over all nations. What does God of Israel have to do with Elam? He has everything to do with Elam because he's the God of Elam. He's the God of the nations. 
So that long distance from Judah to Elam is removed from, it's so removed from other countries, but it doesn't remove Elam from God's area of influence. This is the point that God has made before through the words of his prophet Jeremiah, such as Jeremiah 23, verse 23, Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. Jeremiah 23, 23 and 24. So God's area of influence is everywhere, is clearly one of the lessons we're getting from our short passage we even have this truth that we teach to children in our children's catechism. For example, let me recite for you three questions from the children's catechism. Question 10, where is God? God is everywhere. Question 11, can you see God? No, I cannot see God, but he can always see me. Question 12, does God know all things? Yes, nothing can be hidden. From God. Isn't that the same lesson that Jeremiah is pointing out in chapter 23 and again here in chapter 49? That God sees each person in each place. God hears all words, sees all actions, even knows the thoughts of mind and motives of hearts of each person and the decisions of ruling councils of each nation before, during, and after they make them. So in verse 35 here, God is actually proclaiming a message not just to Elam. But as the final nation within this chapter, he's really saying it to all mankind, to all nations. He's saying this list is not exhaustive. This list is suggestive. It's suggestive that every nation could be listed in this list. He's really saying to all mankind when he says in verse 35, I will break the bow of Elam, the mainstay of their might. It's almost clear that you see from verse 35, each nation is to ask themselves, what's the mainstay of my might? And will God address me there? He's focused on the source of power for that nation and for each nation. Is a, is a nation, for example, strong with horses, good with chariots, skilled with arrows? It's like the classic challenge you might see in a movie. Pick your weapon. I'll beat you with whatever weapon you decide that we're going to do this fight with. God is saying, Pick whatever you think is your strength, Elam. Pick whatever you think is your strength, country XYZ. I will beat you at your game using those weapons. It's God getting loud. It's God showing his might. It's God demonstrating his rule over all nations. So for Elam, their strongest military skill set was their archers. You know, the, the soldiers who specially trained and military um, uniquely capable with bow and arrow. The nation of Elam had often relied on these soldiers, these bows, these arrows to protect them from foreign attacks, such as Babylon. They were not far from Babylon, on the other side of Babylon. It was well known in the ancient world, as we even see from one line from the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 22.6, listen, Elam bore the quiver with chariots and horsemen. So they're good with the bow. They're good with the, the archers. God says, I will break the bow of Elam. Today we use the language of superpower. What's your superpower? And only those nations that have the strongest uh, military might are the superpower. It's the, the nations with the, for example, fastest fighter jets or the capability of surface-to-air missiles or nuclear bombs. 
We even use the word superpower more personally and individually to refer to the strength of a person. You know, if, if a person is not so smooth socially, but he's a whiz at math, we've taken to say that's his superpower. Or if she's awkward, but she can solve the Rubik's Cube in 20 seconds, one-handed, blindfolded, and she's accepted by the cool kids, that's her superpower. We talk about superpower on the national level. We talk about superpower on the individual level. And what God is saying here is for both countries and individuals, whatever your strongest skill set is, God wants you to know that you can't rely on that when it comes to defending yourself against the coming onslaught of his judgment. That's the clear message of this passage. He's saying it to Elam, but looking over the shoulder of Elam, he's saying it to all of us as nations and as individuals. Verse 36, he says, I'll scatter them. We're talking in our study of Jeremiah about God bringing his people into exile. But he's going to take Elam and not just put them in exile in one country. He's going to spread them out like a spray of buckshot to every nation. Look, look how verse 36 tells us this. I will scatter them to all those winds and there should be no nation to which those driven out of Elam shall not come. A little bit of the group of those from Elam will appear in every nation. That's scattered. That's an exile. Verse 36, this metaphor about the Four winds, scattering people to the four winds is a way of the Bible again and again saying that God will use overwhelming force to produce a devastating result. The four winds, we might think of it as a tornado. Winds from seemingly everywhere, the four winds from the four corners of a room, the four winds from the four corners of heaven, as it were. It's poetic way of saying God will destroy. There's no escape. It comes, as it were, from everywhere. Even Alam positioned as it is, at the ends of the earth, will suffer a massive exile and be spread to all the world in their little exile as a result of God moving in his four winds. Scattered, exiled, judged, destroyed. Verse 37, we read this phrase, declares the Lord. The questions arising out of our passage, who truly has authority? Elam is mentioned seven times in our passage, but each time it's mentioned, it's the recipient of judgment. Elam is mentioned seven times, but it's the Lord who has the authority. Declares the Lord, verse 37. You see it again in verse 38 and again in verse 39. Declares the Lord. That's our clue of who has authority. And it brings us to our second point. We're supposed to be envisioning the authority of God, and he helps us with it. He clarifies it further in verse 38 in our second point, envisioning a victorious throne. If you're going to think about the power and authority and extent of God's power, it's helpful to think about this throne. It's best pictured here in verse 38. I will set my throne in Elam. Fascinating word picture. It's something that we are to imagine as readers. There's Elam, ends of the earth. Jeremiah is speaking to the country at the ends of the earth. And God says, I'm going to put my throne there. Just so there's no question who has authority 
at the ends of the earth, a place like Elam. It follows the ancient practice, and God knows this good and well. He instructed through Jeremiah to write it this way, that in the ancient world, the victorious kings would always practice this victory power display. They would set up this portable throne that they'd carried all the way from home. They'd plunk it down in the middle of this country that they just took over, and they'd have the king come over and sit on it. And as he sits there unchallenged, they'll say, see, we've completely conquered you, haven't we? Questions? It's God saying he'll do just like those human kings were doing to display his authority over Elam. You're a defeated country. You're a defeated city. Ancient kings would set up their own throne in that central invisible place to demonstrate how they conquered it. For example, in Jeremiah 49, verses Uh, Sorry, 43 verses 9 through 23, God had said Nebuchadnezzar's throne would be set up in Egypt after he conquered it. Remember that when we studied that? Where would he put it? Quote, at the entrance to Pharaoh's palace. Isn't it just a little funny that the king of Babylon would have his throne at the entrance to the palace of the king of Egypt? Do you you understand this? Do Do you grasp what's happening? It's It's Think of it as if they were to announce on the news tomorrow that the White House is moving. Where are they moving? They're going to be right in front of the Kremlin. I mean, just to set up the throne of the king of Babylon right in front of Pharaoh's palace is a stark picture of God setting up his throne in Elam, saying, I'm the God of heaven, I'm the God of Israel, but I'm in authority in Elam too. The righteous God will set up his righteous throne in the middle of each nation to judge each nation. He'll use his authority not just to judge, but also to bless. What if you were king of the world, queen of the world? What would you do? It reveals who we are, what we would do. And it reveals who God is, that he has full, complete authority everywhere, means he's going to judge evil, and he's also going to give out undeserved mercy and grace. Listen to the words of Jesus. Where does the authority of God extend? Listen to his son, the Lord Jesus, who we read in Psalm 2, is given the place of king. Jesus says, Matthew 28, 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. It's a blessing that Jesus does from his place of highest authority. God uses his authority to bless all nations, sending the missionaries to tell them and plead with them to come and turn. Turn from your rebellious, sinful ways. Come back to the God who's both judge and savior. Become obedient disciples about to receive his blessings. Consider how Jeremiah had earlier summed up these concepts in Jeremiah 9, verse 23. The Lord says, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom... Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. Let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. He's saying the same thing in our passage, now specifically to Elam. So that's our second point, to envision the victorious throne of Christ over Elam and over our own lives. We move to our third point, the last verse, now enjoying our restoration by the Lord God. Every verb in our passage so far had God as its subject. 
God said, I will break the bow. I will scatter them. I will terrify Elam. I will set my throne in Elam. Remember? After all that massive destruction and devastation, God adds one more action, one more active verb for God to do. And here it is in verse 39 where God said, I will restore. I will restore. I'll restore the fortunes of Elam. God's ultimate resolve is the well-being even of Elam. But that well-being and that future for Elam can only happen when God's throne has been firmly established in that faraway land and all other rivals to God's throne have been eliminated. That's the context that we read verse 39 in. Those four winds of destruction commanded by God don't have the last word. God has another word. He has another message. The same God who sent those four winds. The same God who scattered them around the whole world. The same God who used the winds to cause exiles out of Elam uses the resurrection of Jesus Christ to gather his people, to bring them in, to bring them home, to bring them into his worship around the world and worship services to bring them into his family. It's restoration equaling salvation. Even the final promise of restoration is an action of God himself. Sure enough, residents of Elam, doomed Elam, were among those who, were heard, who heard the preaching of the gospel by the apostles on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. They heard it in their own language. God is the Savior, not just of his people, the Jews, but of the Gentiles as well. This is a statement of God through the apostle Paul, Romans 3.29. What's God doing behind the curtain of divine activity? When you read the news and you hear what's happening around the world, what is God doing behind the curtain of divine action? We can't always see. We can't always know. But in Acts chapter 2, God kind of lifted up the curtain a little bit and allowed us to see what he was doing and what he was about. He was sharing his word with all nations. First, in a central conference which offered translation and then dispatching missionaries from there to every nation of the world. That's what God is doing. It's said in Acts chapter 2, people from Elam were there at the initial central worldwide conference. Listen to just a few verses of, listen for the Elamites, Acts 2 verse 8. How is it that we hear each of us in his native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Acts 2, 8 through 11. That's what God is doing. God's building a worldwide kingdom. He's building churches in each nation. He's bringing people from darkness to light. He's bringing people from wickedness to righteousness and holiness. God knew all about the sins of Elam. You know what's fascinating in the passage we just just unpacked? The sins aren't actually listed. Does it matter? God knew about their sins, and they sinned enough that God was sending judgment. He's sending judgment to destroy. He is the evaluator. He is the judge of Elam. But he also knew the language of Elam. He knew the need of Elam. 
He is also the savior of Elam. And so God caused people from Elam to be present that day in the gathering in Jerusalem when the Holy Spirit came down to share then to the world the redemptive action of the Lord Jesus Christ who had died and risen again. God has not stopped offering restoration to the people of Elam and the people of all lands. The gospel of Jesus Christ continues to spread among the people of Iran, which is where that is, to this day. There are many Christians in Iran. Hundreds of thousands of Iranian Christians have come to the United States. We in the churches of the United States now have this wonderful opportunity to continue to share and build up those who are God's people from Iran who are in our country, sharing his grace to sinners from the end of the earth, as it were. God's grace is to be scattered. It's to be scattered to every people and tribe and language. God is a God of both judgment and salvation. Judgment meaning he won't put up with sin and wrong. Salvation meaning he'll cover our sin and wrong at the cost of his own son. So that's our message today. What have we seen? That Christ, the king's dominion, overcomes the strongest thrones in the farthest locations with his judgment and his salvation. Hearing what he'll do and say about my throne, my desire to rule my life. Secondly, envisioning the victorious throne of Christ placed over my life, placed over his church. And thirdly, enjoying our restoration by our Savior and King. So I have three concluding applications to us. Number one, be comforted that faraway places of the world will all give account to God. Take comfort in that. Everybody everywhere will give account for everything they've ever said and done. At the national level, collectively, leaders, groups of leaders, councils, at the individual level, this is a comfort to believers whenever world events are troubling to us. Everyone who rules by terror, perverts justice, traffics in drugs and humans, hires assassins, promotes abortion, destroys things that God has created, stockpiles or uses biological or chemical weapons, whatever it is that concerns us, all will face God for their crimes. Active shooters, every single one of them, will face God for what they have done. Take comfort in that. All world leaders... It consoles us to remember God sees it. God will make it right. Let me put it this way. No one gets away with anything, including ourselves. The wrongs that we have done are only cleared because Jesus has taken them to the cross for us and he died for them. That's why we're cleansed. He rose again that we have a living Savior and we are cleansed. No matter how great, no matter how powerful empires are, no matter how destructive or sophisticated a person is, no matter how brilliant a person is or the government official, God will hold them all accountable. I would say be comforted in that as our first application of this study. And second, remember that in Jesus, we were already judged by God. We were already in the new covenant which means our pathway to restoration is to keep on repenting and believing. I'll say that again. Our second application is, remember that in Jesus, we were already judged by God at the cross, so we're already in the new covenant, and our pathway to his restoration is to keep on repenting and believing. The death that we read about in our passage 
I will do this, I will terrify, I will destroy. All that death brought about by God's judgment actually leads to new life and restoration for those who will turn to God in repentance. Jesus said to his disciples after his resurrection, he's walking with them on that famous road to Emmaus, you know, in in Luke chapter 24. He says in Luke 24, verse 25, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Luke 24, 25. In that verse, Jesus shows how he came to experience the fullness of the judgment of God that was due to his people Israel and is due to you and me. Do not trust in the wrong things to make it through your day, to make it through your month, to make it through your life. Don't trust your savings to provide what you need if other people will fail to pay, then you have the money. Don't trust your cleverness to beat the system or manipulate everything to your own advantage. Don't trust your personal charm. Don't trust your ability or desire to go it alone and not rely on anyone else like we studied last week, uh, the, the people of Kedar. Don't trust your own toughness or your own tools of strength like today we study the people of the country of Elam. It's damaging to our spiritual lives to believe in the illusion of our own resources, our own superpower skills, as it were, to get us through. We studied the Ammonites. They became foodies. They centered themselves on finding and enjoying good food. We studied the Edomites who built up homes higher and higher on the hill. Do we not do that? We studied the wandering Bedouins last time, demanding their space. Don't we do that too? And like the Elamites, we rely on our own strength. We think that God's final evaluation will not find us guilty of any of these ancient errors that we studied in Jeremiah chapter 49. We cannot outsmart, outmaneuver, or buy our way out of facing God and his judgment in the end. That's the clear message of this chapter. So we need to make that change and believe instead in God's power and in his resources through Christ's death and resurrection. That is our only hope. And we too suffered with Christ and died with Christ. We too live with Christ by faith. Listen to how Paul put this so clearly in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. In the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me, Galatians 2.20. We've already been judged by God. We've already been brought into the restoration of God, the fulfillment of the promises here through Jeremiah to the country of Elam and by other prophets to all the nations. Jesus already now reigns over us because he's king of all the nations, because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. The new covenant we studied in Jeremiah 31 and following has already begun and we're living in it by faith. We already have the law of God written in our hearts. We already have forgiveness of sins. So that's our second application point. Remember that in Jesus, we are already judged. We already live in the new covenant and our pathway to his restoration is to keep on repenting and believing. And the last application is understanding the heart of God is in worldwide missions. Understanding the heart of God is in worldwide missions. When I hear Christians complaining about suffering and unjust things around the world, 
It's as if they're focused on human governments and what human governments should or should not do. And that's it. The heart of God is not in the structure of human governments, but in his kingdom. And he's building a church and a worldwide kingdom through his missions. What about missions there? God is as concerned with people we don't know about as God is concerned about us. He's as concerned about people in the farthest away place as he is about us. Think of Daniel, one of the exiles who was in Babylon. He wrote in Daniel 7.14, the vision of God is that all peoples and nations and languages should serve God. Daniel 7.14. That's repeated by John in Revelation 5, 9-10. We read that Christ has ransomed by his blood people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. That's the heart of God. If we're going to be concerned about worldwide things as we should be as believers, we're concerned about worldwide missions. It's on the heart of God and it should be on our heart that God is concerned with each and every one of the persons in each and every country. If I were to put a globe in front of you, a world globe with blanks for the names of all the nations, how many of the 195 nations would you be able to write in and fill in the blank and know the name of it? Yet we think that we can dictate or say what should happen around the world. It's very arrogant and prideful. For some of the people, we don't speak their language. We've never been there, never will be there. We know nothing about them. But God, our God, the same God that we serve and worship here in this service, is concerned enough to send missionaries there to teach wicked sinners about his mercy to them in Jesus. If you want to be godly, that's part of your mindset. That's part of your heart's cry, is to be like God, having a heart for worldwide missions. Our God is ready to forgive ready to restore, ready to renew. The heart of God is in worldwide missions. Let's pray.